G'day everyone, Lockie Massel here. Welcome to another episode of the Checkered Flag Chat Podcast. This week we're having a look at the ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Australian motorsport industry as a whole. We discuss the likely effects on national and state level categories and the impacts on young drivers trying to forge a career in the sport. To help me break it all down, I've brought in Dave Stilwell, who will be familiar to you from our annual Bathurst 12-hour preview podcasts. So, here we go. Dave and I try to answer the big questions on everyone's mind, here on Checkered Flag Chat. For this episode of Checkered Flag Chat, I thought we'd change things up a bit. Obviously, we're going through a pretty turbulent time at the moment, not just in the motorsport world, but in life in general, with the COVID-19 pandemic and all of its implications on the economy and our lifestyles in general. And there's been a lot of discussion relating to specific motorsport categories and what they need to do in terms of reducing costs and other initiatives that they need to take to make sure that we can get through on the other side of this crisis in relatively good health. But what I want to do today is have a bit of a look at the wider or the bigger picture, the wider motorsport landscape and exactly how it's going to impact upon people who are involved in the industry. So very pleasing to be able to welcome Dave Stilwell back to Checkered Flag Chat. Normally we have him on for our Bathurst 12-hour preview podcasts, but given that Dave has filled a variety of different roles within the motorsport industry, he comes with a wealth of experience and knowledge to be able to contribute some hopefully intelligent discussion points emphasis on hopefully good evening dave good evening lachlan and if the last four months of living through uh coronavirus and lockdowns and border closures and people being in quarantine has taught us anything hope is in short supply and you've got to hold on to every last little bit of it you can lachlan so i hope that we'll get through this for your listeners as well Let's talk about how it's impacted on you personally, because I know that you obviously had some plans in a few different fields, including racing yourself in the Victorian production sports car series. In your role as an official, you were going to be travelling over to the Vietnamese Formula One Grand Prix this year, and you also had some commentary work lined up at some events throughout the year as well. All of that has been put on hold. Just give us a sense of how much it's impacted upon you. Look, I think you've kind of put it in a sort of a short capsule review. I mean, you were with me on the weekend at the Australian Grand Prix when motorsport as we knew it came to a crashing halt on that Friday morning with the impromptu press conference from Andrew Westercott and Chase Carey, who they couldn't make a decision because Chase Carey was flying over from Vietnam. Look, the first couple of months of this year, you know, March, April and May, were going to be very, very busy. Um, you know, we came off a, the start of the year. We had a successful World Superbike round where there was the, the cloud of potential corona hanging over, but we managed to get through that okay. At the same time, the chief medical officer for that event is also the chief medical officer for the Australian Grand Prix and for Motorsport Australia. That's Dr. Brent May. So Brent was furiously writing protocols on how to 
deal with coronavirus and what the potential impacts were and how to manage it. And then, of course, we had the news come through on the Wednesday night before the event that there there was a, a couple of members, I believe, of the McLaren team who had potentially tested positive. And then 24 hours later, it, it became apparent that uh, one or two other members in the paddock may have tested positive. And then that Friday morning, the medical team, all the hundreds of volunteer officials turned up and uh, got the call at about 9.30, 9.45 in the morning that uh, that was it. It's all she wrote. And then it proceeded to unravel from there. Teams were packing up and thinking they were going to go to Bahrain next and then Vietnam. Well, those got nixed in very short order. Uh, quite a number of Motorsport Australia uh, volunteer officials were scheduled to head over to Vietnam and had been heading over to Vietnam to Hanoi for a number of months leading up to what was going to be the first VinFast or Vin Group uh, Vietnamese Grand Prix and uh, that got turned off. Uh, Vietnam itself was dealing with a fairly major outbreak to its uh, northern border with China and then everything unraveled continued to unravel you know i had plans to run it uh to work as a driving standards officer with the garagistic bmw drivers cup at the second round of the victorian state circuit racing championships at winton that got terminated uh there was an australian gt event scheduled for phillip island that got terminated um the vietnamese grand prix we were going there for a week to do some final training with the officials and put on the event that got cancelled I was meant to get back on the Tuesday, turn around, fly to Bathurst on Wednesday with my father and then compete at uh, the next round of the Shannon's Motorsport Australia Championships, including the Bathurst six-hour alongside the Australian GT field. And that event got cancelled. And then it was one after the other. And I think the hardest part it has been to deal with is some people have likened this situation to the, you know, the global financial crisis between 2008 and 2010. And there are a lot of parallels. But the interesting thing is, is that it's an ever-changing situation and you're, you're never quite sure what the next day will bring. With the GFC, it was a sort of a snowball effect, but it was, it was, you could always predict where it was going to happen. You know, there was a bank and then there was some mortgage lenders and then there was this company shut down and then that company supplied all these other companies. And so they had to put some people on, on leave or, or terminate some employees. Whereas in the motorsport and the automotive game, um, which are very heavily linked in Australia, it's, it's just been an ever changing battlefield, you know, from a commentary perspective, when, Organisers were talking about going back to motor racing, be that at a club, uh, state, national or an international series like the Supercars or, or the Asian Le Mans series, the ELMS, um, any of the Asian championships, uh, the Blanc Pain GT World Challenge Asia. A lot of those events, if they do go back, would be going back with competitors only no spectators once you have no spectators on on site it drastically reduces you know the number of media personnel you need uh, you don't need an on-site commentary team we, we've seen with the recent formula one um, quite a number of the people you'd expect to be wandering the paddock in uh, in the styrian hills in austria are actually doing their jobs remotely from back in england or wherever their broadcast center is um, we saw that with the supercars event as well so and even in the last week or two we've had uh, the supercars has gone through three or four calendar changes and then they were all set after their first return to racing went to winton and then of course that's been turned off so with the situation in victoria as it is who knows what the next day week month holds for any industry let alone motorsport 
I think um, if you go back to when the COVID-19 pandemic first flared up, the buzzword that everybody in the media was using was unprecedented. I think if you look at the last four weeks and the buzzword that's being used in the media more recently, subjects to change. Seems to be the the flavour of the month in terms of the, the terminology that's being used to describe plans for calendars and events. Here you go, Lachlan. We'll, we'll use a, a lovely buzzword that a whole host of original equipment manufacturers use in the automotive space. It's a dynamic environment. No <laughs> one knows what that means, but it's very dynamic. Speaking of dynamic environments, we've touched on the disruption to the calendar for the Virgin Australia Supercars Championship, and there's been a lot of discussion here in Australia with the supercars and what it needs to do in terms of the calendar. And... Other people on other podcasts who have got a lot more technical knowledge than you or I have also gone into a lot of detail in terms of things that can change with the technical regulations for the cars, moving into the Gen 3 platform of cars to try and cut the costs. And they've talked about mixing up the race formats and, and that sort of thing as well. But I think one of the things is that's supercars and specifically supercars has had it's come under the spotlight, it's come under the microscope, there's been a lot of attention and a lot of discussion around the future of supercars. But there hasn't been so much discussion or conversation around other national categories, a lot of which are recognised as breeding grounds and stepping stones for young talent, for the aspiring professional racing drivers, categories like the Super 2 Series, which has now merged with the Super 3 Series, to become the one series for different classes for uh, for supercars of different eras, the Porsche Carrera Cup, the Toyota 86 Series, the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge, TCR Australia National Formula Ford. And the thing that strikes me, Dave, is that competitors in these series are often heavily reliant on sponsorship to be able to go racing. And the calendars for all of those national series have been quite severely disrupted as well. As we record this podcast, we're now in July, and Carrera Cup, they got a round in at Adelaide. They got one race in at the Grand Prix. Um, Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge and TCR haven't started yet. Neither has the Toyota 86 Series. Neither has National Formula Ford. So if you're a young driver, for example, and you were planning to compete in the Toyota 86 Series or the Australian Formula Ford Championship this season, you haven't raced yet. You've lost six months of seat time and driver development time. For drivers who might previously have been planning to climb the ladder and maybe looking to move up to a different category at a higher level in 2021... Do they now need to spend an extra year at their current level? Are we basically going to see the progression pathway for a lot of young drivers sort of postponed by 12 months as a result of everything that's happened? Look, it's a really good question, Lachlan. And I think, you know, not only have we had the calendars compressed, with a limited number of weekends available throughout the 2020 calendar year, a number of those series have had to find alternative venues and opportunities to be able to give their competitors, be they aspiring young racers, gentlemen, professionals, or a mixture of all three, to deliver for their customers what they want. And a lot of those category organisers are also in the same boat as far as their competitors are. 
they rely upon sponsorship to pay for TV contracts, to uh, purchase grid time from some of the major event providers. Um, a lot of those category sponsorships are paid on an per-event basis or as content is delivered as per the contract. If you're an event organiser, take your previous guest Craig Denyer uh, as an example, you know, or if you're Neil Crompton from uh, running the Toyota 86 racing series, you know, you've got vastly different outlooks for your competitor base. From the competitor side, if I'm a young aspiring racer, I think you're in the same boat as a lot of our year 12 or high school education students would be during 2020. This is going to be the year with an asterisk on it where you'll look at someone's results, but you'll have in the back of your mind that was the year that everything was crazy. You know, we didn't get to see their performance over an eight-round series because we couldn't get eight rounds in. What it does throw up, I think, is that the opportunities for those drivers in 2021 may look substantially different because a number of cat if if the financial picture for a number of categories doesn't improve there may not be a next step on the the pyramid um, to their chosen destination they may have to skip a level and go to the next level after that and if that's an issue budget wise they might be sitting out a year or they might be disappearing off the ladder altogether. Let's go back to basics and just have a bit of a discussion about the whole concept of the pathway to becoming a professional racing driver if you're starting off here in Australia, because I'm sure you would agree, Dave, that in the current landscape, if you want to race professionally, you've basically got two options. If you want to stay here in Australia, you have to race supercars. That's the only destination category where you can be a paid professional racing driver here in Australia. And in fact, not even all of the drivers on the supercars grid are actually in a position where they get paid to race, as you and I both well know. The other option, of course, is that you head overseas and you aim for a career in America or in Europe, either in open wheelers or in sports or GT racing. But with the obvious restrictions on international travel in the face of COVID-19, it's now going to become a lot more difficult to pursue opportunities overseas. In saying that, we do still have some very good Australian drivers who are overseas, people like Oscar Piastri, who scored a race win in the first round of the Formula 3 Championship at the Red Bull Ring, um, Alex Peroni, he was on the podium as well. And Matt Campbell would be another example of an Aussie driver who's overseas. But the thing there is that all of those drivers already had those opportunities lined up previously, which meant that they had something to go to. They had a team that, and events that they were already locked in to, to participate in. If you're in a position where you're trying to create opportunities overseas, they're able to go over and network with people to create those opportunities is going to be a lot more difficult in the current environment. Absolutely. And if we cast our, our minds forward in the next six months or so, one of the best breeding grounds to translate to an international open wheeler or sports car career, the Toyota Gazoo Racing Series in New Zealand for the essentially a regional Formula 3 level of car, at the moment, Australia and New Zealand is locked down. 
there is limited travel between the countries. And if we continue to have issues in Victoria, it's unlikely that those travel restrictions, even within our two countries, um, we share a great many you know, sporting and cultural passions. If the travel restrictions aren't relaxed between Australia and New Zealand, how does that bode for, you know, if they can't get a volume of international drivers, as they often have, into the Antipodean summer series or the, the off-season for those who would aspire to race up the ladder in Europe, if they can't get enough bums in seats, what what happens to the Toyota racing series in New Zealand at the start of 2021? Does that go ahead? Does that then put a further block in the way, as you mentioned, finding that kickstart, that jump to the next level in Europe if you can't race in your own backyard at the highest developmental level? Assuming there that the opportunities to go overseas are going to become more limited, we look back into our own backyard, racing here in Australia, aiming for the supercars. We've already seen people like Scott Pye, who, yes, they race supercars, but they've also got employment outside of motorsport. We've seen with Scott, with his one-line media business, that he's got a professional vocation in addition to his motorsport career. Do you think that we're going to need to see more people heading down that sort of route to be able to run something that gives them a supplementary income outside of their motorsport activities? Or do you think that uh, there's still going to be enough money at the top level for people to become professional full-time supercar drivers? Well, I think, Lachlan, that you and I would agree that the peak period of driver salaries and paid employment in the supercars championship or the top level of Australian motorsport is well and truly behind us. The days of drivers being paid, you know, very high six figures or rumours into the seven figures contracts, you know, for one year or two years driving, those days are over. Quite a number of the drivers are in effect paid for driving, but their salary effectively comes out of the sponsorship package that they have put together, that they are the brand identity with, that they bring to the team. You know, consider someone like Jason Bright for a number of years who who took the Fujitsu branding with him or BOC, um, you know, use uh, the Truck Assist uh, branding that followed uh, Jack LeBrock to Tickford and then swapped with Lee Holdsworth. So there's a number of drivers that are, quote, getting a salary from the sport, but it's nowhere near the massive, you know, multi um, hundreds of thousands of dollars that people might expect a professional athlete to be paid. And the flow on from that is that I think in any professional sport, you see it with, you know, professional footballers, a lot of professional athletes in other sports, that they're looking for additional stimulus and they know that they have a finite time in the finite time in the sport. Um, you know, we, they can't all race until their fifties and sixties, you know, like, uh, like Jim Richards did, um, or Larry Perkins did. Um, there comes a time where you, you do have to transition out of full-time driving. And so I think, you know, look at what Jason Bright's done with his task force business. You've got Scott Pye with his media business. Um, you know, Jamie Winkup runs his car wash cafe on, on the Gold Coast. And even people like Tim Slade are dabbling in, you know, brewing. We've got aspiring young drivers who are running simulator businesses with the uh, young, his name's just escaped me. Tom Randall? Thomas Tom Randall. Randall. Thomas Randall, of course, with his simulator business. 
Um, You know, so doing having a business outside of motor racing, whether it's peripherally involved or completely separate, is nothing new. But I think the reality is set in for people that you'd better off you'd be better off having you know a finger in the pie or a, a a toe in the water exercise now so that if the landscape shifts in the next 12 to 18 months and the sponsorship package that you're bringing to a team evolves or that sp- sponsor can't contribute and then another driver comes along who has a, a sponsorship package that identifies with that driver and that's their person you know consider what happened with uh, with Phil Monday and Will Davison Milwaukee having a great time in the sport. Will Davison achieving all the goals that organization wanted. Milwaukee, the sponsor pulls the pin due to coronavirus-related financial issues. Uh, Phil Monday's required to turn up with a car as a racing entitlement contract holder. He's got a contract with his driver, Will, but at the end of the day, they weren't able to continue on. And so Phil had to find a solution through, you know, Boost Mobile and Peter Addison and put James Courtney into the seat. And I think that as a particular example, that will galvanise a lot of the, potentially a lot of the younger members of the Supercars paddock to go, you know, your position in this paddock is not guaranteed. There is nothing set in stone. There are very few drivers that we would consider to be part of the furniture that we couldn't, that we would expect not to see on the grid in the next 12 months. Um, and so I think you'll see a lot of people engaging in that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, whether it be they start up a car business on the side or they um, have a winery or they have some form of, um, they leverage their visibility, their personability, their engagement with businesses in another industry or in another avenue. Um, you know, because a lot of these, at the same time, they're professional athletes. They're also professional businesses, and they've got to make sure that they put food on the table for their families. Just thinking about the the overall economic impact of COVID nineteen. So we have obviously seen the casualty of twenty three red racing in the Supercars Championship. If we look at the wider motorsport landscape, one of the things that I've noticed, we have had a couple of state-level events here in New South Wales, and the fields for those events have actually been very healthy, which would tend to indicate that the economic impact on that level of competitor hasn't been felt too severely just yet. Of course, sometimes in these sorts of economic situations, you do get a lag where there's a delay between when the crisis happens and when it starts to permeate through the economy and actually start to affect people. So we'll see where those state-level events are at in the next six and 12 months. But the categories that I've got deeper concerns for are the categories like Porsche Carrera Cup and like the Toyota 86 series, where the competitors are generally a bit more heavily reliant on some form of sponsorship. And furthermore, they also have to travel interstate because their national-level Categories. I think that state-level motorsport, where people don't have to travel and where the expenses are a bit lower, might not be affected too badly. But some of those national-level categories that are underneath supercars, I think they're the ones that are really going to be tested. What do you reckon? I think we can draw a lot of parallels with, if you remember what the industry went through, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, at the time that we... Uh, went through the global financial crisis. There was that initial, you know, big, scary mortgage collapse in the US and then the flow-on effect. 
if we translate that to our current environment, you talk about a, an improvement or a, a bump in the numbers of competitors at state level. You know, if if you would have attended, if you would have had 80% of your competitors turn up at one state meeting and then a different 80% turn up at the second state race meeting, if those meetings come together, they've taken two state race meetings worth of budget and turned it into one. So it made it possible for some more people to turn up. Those state level competitors more often than not are not running businesses that have very large employee bases where they have to be concerned about the public image of the CEO or a high level executive, you know, racing on a weekend in their Porsche or their Australian GT car for want of an example. Um, they're much less likely to um, have to worry about what the visibility, what the optics, as they say in marketing, are like, as mm. far as uh, as far as their engagement is. Now, if we flow onto a lot of our Toyota eighty six competitors um, or national Formula Ford competitors, a lot of those are racing on family money, either a small part or a large portion of the budget. But a lot of the businesses that they go after for for sponsorship are the kind of businesses that might also have to go, look, we've just had to let a dozen or 50 people go or put them onto reduced hours. We really can't have our brand associated with motorsport when we just had to tell people that they're getting less money this week. You touched there on you know the fact that if you can condense two events into one event, it actually makes it a bit more affordable and you can end up with more competitors on the grid. And if you cast your mind back to 2015 when Motorsport Australia or CAVS, as it was still back then, conducted their strategic review and decided that they needed to get back to a position where there were fewer motorsport categories, there was a lot of backlash from the motorsport community when CAVS published that strategic review. But thinking about it now, their, their intention wasn't without merit. There is actually a, a quite valid argument, and Craig Denyer and I discussed this on last week's podcast as well, about the fact that there are too many motorsport categories in Australia, and in a lot of instances it would be better to have a smaller number of stronger categories rather than a larger number of weaker categories competing against one another for competitors and for commercial backing. Is this an opportunity for Australian motorsport now in this crisis to be able to cleanse itself and get back to a position where there are fewer categories with stronger fields and perhaps now be able to do it in such a way that you don't get so much backlash from the competitors? I think that's absolutely going to be the case, Lachlan, but I think it'll be a combination of what direction does the um, do the governing bodies take, be it the ASA, uh, races in Queensland or Motorsport Australia is the uh, predominant governing body. But the other thing is, I think the market will decide, you know, and you and I would definitely agree, we'd be far happier having eight grids of 20 cars than having 20 grids of eight cars turn up at a race meeting. I think we've already started to see the impact of the running cost of some of the higher end of the sport. The Australian GT Championship um, has not been in as, quote, rude health as it had been maybe five or six years ago. And a lot of those drivers, uh, owner drivers, you know, the the amateur gentlemen, uh, and again, it is an amateur-focused series, 
um, you know, the silver and bronze ranked drivers, a lot of them are going in a position where they might have the disposable income to fund a motorsport program, but the optics don't look good for it. Or they're in a position where their business isn't doing so well and they can maybe they can't maybe do the big flashy program, but maybe they can race at a state based level. I think you'll see you'll see a reduction probably in one or two categories at a national level. What those will be, I think the market will decide. But I think you'll see a flow on of the competitors that still have that urge to, you know, turn money into noise for want of a better term. You know, you might see a, a GT competitor running in Michelin uh, Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge. You might see a Michelin Sprint Challenge competitor who's based in Victoria leasing a Porsche 944 instead. You might see a Toyota 86 Racing Series competitor uh, not be able to make the big trips to the interstate race meetings. They might run their car in a production car series or they might bolt a set of Yokohamas onto it and run an improved production. The good thing is, is that there are a number of categories or types of car that with very limited modification can move into other categories. You know, we've seen um, the TA2 design of car run alongside sports sedans um, at a number of events. Um, you know, the, the Porsche uh, GT3 Cup car is a great example, eligible for a number of production sports car races. But some of the other cars, which have a very limited scope of application, you know, if you're a competitor with a Formula 3 car, there's very few places other than the Australian Formula 3 series on the AMRS or the Formula race car series in New South Wales. Other than those, there's no opportunity for you to race wheel-to-wheel with those cars. Whereas if you own a production car, for example, you do have a lot more versatility with your particular type of car and a lot more options of where to run it because... As well as running it in either the state or the national level production series, you can also run it in improved production. You can run it in endurance events like the Wakefield and the Winton 300s. You can run it in the Super TT series in New South Wales and Victoria. So those sorts of cars where there are multiple options and multiple platforms in which to race them, all of a sudden, they look like very, very good value for money as uh, as if you want to own a race car as a, a pretty good choice of car to own, especially if you want to be getting a lot of seat time and uh, especially if you don't necessarily want to have to travel interstate. And speaking of production cars, Dave, there was an announcement late last week that the Australian production car series sponsored by MRF Tyres and managed by Ian Sharon and his Ontic Sports organisation is going to be running the remainder of their 2020 season as part of the AMRS. And uh, in my opinion, really, really sensible to see a couple of people getting together, having a discussion and reaching a decision that is in the best interests of the competitors and the wider motorsport landscape. And hopefully that sets an example that others can follow. At the end of the day, this is an industry that is focused around customer service. You know, you have competitors who are customers. They are customers of a governing body, of a license and insurance provider. You have category organisers who have their own customers, being the competitors in their series, but they themselves are customers of racing series, of vehicle providers. You know, you have to determine who your market is, what they want, how can you deliver the product that they want at a price they can afford? 
and that you can justify going to a governing body or a series organiser with and say, hey, give us four or five hours out of your weekend for us to uh, run our cars. The production car example is a really good one. If we go back six to nine months ago, we were hearing talk about a an alternative, essentially another, an additional national production car series with slightly different regulations being run under a different sanctioning body. Whereas here we've got the perfect storm of the Australian production car series being told, so these are the events we have left under this existing arrangement. Um, because of the compactness of the calendar, we're going to have to change your race format. Whereas their customers have said, we've signed up and we've built cars for what we want to do, which is we want to run this particular format at these particular level events. We're not concerned about having X, Y, and Z fancy frills. We just want to have good on track racing. And I think moving to that AMRS platform, in addition to having you know, a more direct and having a, a pride of place, you know, a, a prime position in pit lane in that series, um, being the, the feather in the cap, shall we say, for the AMRS, they'll also become part of uh, a fairly major TV package with Speedweek um, and the team at AVE. So I think credit where credit's due to the, to the Sharons and to Matt Baraguana from the AMRS, as you say, they've come to an agreement which helps the AMRS because they're looking for categories to fill in the remainder of their calendar as well because they might not be able to get certain categories in certain critical mass. And it also helps the production car people because they've said, we want to run the cars for long races, which means we need pit lane access. And at a lot of the events they were going to sign up to, um, there wasn't going, that wasn't going to be available. Um, so I think that's... As, as we said, that's the first case of the market deciding that there needs to be a shift and a change in policy, and that's what's happened. I want to get your thoughts on reducing costs in motorsport. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, around cutting costs for supercars with the upcoming Gen 3 platform, reducing the complexity of the cars and making it that, number one, the cars themselves are cheaper to build and maintain, but number two, the complexity to set the cars up and maximise their performance is less labour-intensive, so you don't need to employ as many people to be able to run the supercars team. That's supercars, but once again, looking at the bigger picture here, looking at other categories, to what extent do we need to work on cutting costs for some of the other national-level categories? Because... And the one that particularly springs to mind here is the Super 2 and Super 3 series. Those cars are superseded supercars. Even when Gen 3 comes in at the top level, the main game teams are still going to want somewhere to sell their old machinery, and those cars are not going to get any cheaper to build or maintain. So you might actually be faced with a situation where a Super 2 or a Super 3 program ends up costing more than a main game program just because of the complexity of those vehicles. And I mean, you look at the, the Super 3 cars, which are the, the pre-car of the future cars, and because there were a lot fewer control components in those cars, because they weren't built on control chassis, the maintenance costs for those cars now are becoming exorbitant because a lot of the parts have to be custom-made, and that is mega expensive. But not only that, Lachlan, I mean, the youngest Project Blueprint car would have been constructed in 2012. 
You know, I think there might have been one or two cars debuted at the start of that season and maybe one before the Enduros. Remember, at the same time in 2012, the, most of the teams were building an entire fleet of new race cars for 2013. So the youngest car in the Super 3 grid, and we say Super 3, um, effectively that is still the Kumo V8 Touring Car Series, running as its own thing. It just happens to be sharing the grid with the Super 2 Series. There was that moment where they ran under Super 3 branding last year and then they took away the Super 3 branding and now it's back. But then it's the Dunlop Super 2 Series, but the Super 3 cars are running on Kumo tyres. Again, it's it's a bit of a... It's, it's a bit of a, a funny situation, but again, that's what their competitor base has said. We want to be you know, on the supercar events, but we want to keep the cost down of running on our particular tyre with that set of regulations. I think unless you have a paradigm shift with the manner in which the car is constructed, the components that are used in the car, you won't take a huge amount of cost per kilometre out of the running of the car. Supercars super already has a number of cost-saving measures in place, and they've cranked that up since we've had the resumption of racing. They've reduced the number of maximum number of personnel allowed to be associated with a two-car team. They've severely limited the number of data channels um, that, can be, that can be used. And I think personnel is where they're gonna, you're going to find the big savings. I think they'll start to limit the number of performance-related personnel that'll be associated with each car at a supercars level at the development level i think they'd be open to ideas you know at the end of the day the cars have a cost per kilometer you know mileage on gearboxes uh rear axle assemblies engines etc you know unless you make a fundamental change to the architecture of the cars you can't pull a whole lot of dollars per kilometer out of the car so is there an argument then, Dave, for completely superseding Super 2 and Super 3? So cars built under either the project's blueprint or the car of the future platform. And when Gen 3 comes in, it becomes the main game. And then you have TA2 as your development series. I think you'd find a lot of pushback to that for the very reasons you outlined supercar teams need somewhere to offload their machinery to. I was a little surprised that the control damper wasn't brought in. They haven't been, hasn't been any mention about bringing a control damper into super into super two yet. I find that quite interesting considering that if anything, that's the level of category that you would want to control the damper specs to try to limit the amount of money being spent between the front end and the back end of pit lane in what's meant to be a developmental series. I think from a customer perspective, what's the point of Super 2? It's there to train you how to drive a supercar. If the car is not very closely related, you're not going to get the experience that you want to move up to that next level. Consider most of the people that we've had join the category, the premier category in the last five or 10 years have spent one, two or three seasons in Super 2 just learning the intricacies on how to, you know, manage the weight of the car to the, you know, the peculiarities of the Dunlop tyre, particularly now with the uh, independent rear suspension, but with the spool differential, they're a very, very different car to anything else on the planet and indeed anything further down the developmental ladder, be it the Toyota 86 series, uh, Porsche Carrera Cup, or even a Formula Ford, 
because they're such a unique animal, you know, you'd want it to be as close as possible to uh, the premier level, um, but try to find places where you don't spend a lot of money. I think the the supercars amendments where they blocked access to the data logger and took away a lot of the extra extraneous data channels that you and I would agree add nothing to the show. The punter in the stand doesn't care that oh you know they can monitor all four brake temperatures, pressures, uh, pressures in the tyres, temperatures in the tyres simultaneously. That they've got infrared sensors reading the the, the tread face of the tyre to check what what the, the the tread's doing through the course of a corner. They don't care that the ride height sensors on the shock absorbers um, are you know calibrated down to you know a hundred hertz. It, it makes no difference. And a number of people in the category and outside of the category have reflected the same. Um, I think my favourite quote is from Alan Gow, an expat Australian who's the head of the British Touring Car Championship. And there's a model of cost containment, if ever there was one, when you've gone from a super touring era um, to the current next generation touring car era that they have. His quote about uh, the V8 supercar was, you know, touring car racing does not need to be a technological masturbation exercise. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. If you want to technologically express yourself in a car, have a look at the passion and the engineering and the radical approaches taken to an improved production car or a sports sedan at club and state level. Some of those cars have absolutely amazing engineering, but it's a passion project for one man. The punter in the stand that's watching an 850 horsepower, you know, ex-NASCAR motored Chevy Corvette Trans Am sports van go past, couldn't give two figs whether it's got a live axle or an independent rear suspension or a Detroit locker or a spool diff. They don't care. And to be honest, when I'm behind the wheel, do I care whether I've spent 100 grand or 250 grand on my race car? No. I want to thrive on the thrill of engaging in, you know, vehicular combat with 10, 15, 20, 25 other people. Look at the surge in fields in Hyundai XL racing. You know, it's a 1500cc, you know, economy runabout from the early from the early to mid 90s. And nobody cares that, you know, a good one makes 100 and, I'm spitballing here, 115, 120 horsepower. Who cares if you're racing 11 other people on a race weekend and it costs you a couple of jerry cans worth of fuel and maybe 10% worth of a set of tyres? I'm having fun. And we extrapolate that, you know, look at what New Zealand's done. New Zealand had the uh, NZV8s, which were essentially uh, like a, a V8 supercar hybrid with a saloon car, not a full space frame car. Then they went to New Zealand V8s, had their next generation car. And then there was the Super Tourer series, which was a Paul separate chassis, like a, a dumbed down car of the future, so to speak, with an LS7. And both of those kind of petered out. They were talking about a U-Butte, whiz-bang, fancy next generation car with a you know Coyote motor and then an LS motor and then this, that and the other thing. And it's all gone in a heap. And they've just gone TA2. Because they recognise what their customer base wants, which is loud, obnoxious, big, brutal race cars that cost next to nothing to run by comparison. And I think 
You've touched on another important thing there as well, which is the fun factor. And I think that in light of this pandemic, a lot of people are probably just going to reevaluate their motorsport goals and objectives because there's so many people who have their hearts set on becoming a professional racing driver. But then when they actually get involved and they see what's required in terms of budgets and they see how much politics is involved to make it to the top level, and they get to the point where it's not fun anymore. And I think you might say that there will be a shift back towards state-level motorsport competitors for those people. And it's the majority of people who are involved in motorsport, let's face it, who are doing it because they love driving fast and they love racing door-to-door against a stack of other cars. But for those people who do still have their hearts set on becoming professional racing drivers and who are determined to make it to the top come hell or high water. And there will always be those people who are super ambitious and, um, you know, Lachlan, full, full credit it, to them. It's an awful lot easier to ask your friends and family and their businesses for big wads of cash and then put it in a pile and set fire to it. <laughs> if nothing else, you get a really lovely bonfire, grab some marshmallows and you can roast them. At least you get something to eat out of the deal. That's a good point. So I think that's the other thing as well. I think that a lot of people are probably going to just be re-evaluating and reconsidering exactly what they want from the sport. Because, um, you know, you get a pandemic like this, you get a situation where people's lives change so dramatically and people do actually start to appreciate and enjoy the simpler things in life. And it's become a time of re-evaluation and, and reconsideration for a lot of people. But Again, coming back to those people who are still on the pathway to becoming professional racing drivers and are determined to make a living out of driving racing cars, do we see, given that a lot of the junior development categories have been on hold or only had very limited running this year, do we see virtual motorsport increasingly being used as a platform to recognise and identify new talent considering that we've already seen a couple of Australian teams, Erebus Racing or Erebus Penrite, Erebus Motorsport, and also Matt Stone Racing running a couple of competitions where they've given stars in the virtual world real-life racing opportunities. Well, I think, Lachlan, I think it was about three or four months ago when we saw the proliferation of online streaming of sim racing that we reflected that it it showcased that the exact same problems we have in real life motorsport are replicated in sim racing, but to a level that's far expanded because everyone in Australia goes, I want to run a racing series, but I want it to be slightly different. And I want to reuse this type of car and I want to use this particular format. And I want to race on this day of the week in this sort of weather. And then someone goes, I want to do exactly that, but I want to race cars that are orange and I want to race them backwards. You know, and then we end up, as we said before, with grids of six, seven, eight, ten, eleven cars rather than twenty, twenty-five, thirty cars, which is a good sustainable field size. We're seeing that in we saw that in sim racing when the pandemic hit because there were five or six different variations of before the BP Ultimate. Uh, V8 Supercar All-Stars E-Series hashtag trademark copyright I think I got them all in there Um, even before that series turned up 
there were four or five series that, depending upon who you asked, people would refer to those as the pinnacle of Australian online sim racing, be it in supercars or GT3 cars or um, Trans Am cars or TCR cars or whatever it was. I think the hardest part that sim racing is going to be is a lot like a lot of the development categories do, and that's cutting through the noise. It's how do you make a you how do you as a sim racer advertise yourself, cut through the noise of every other series that's going on simultaneously, and how do you become a marketable prospect? Because if you're a race team looking to put someone in your car, you can scroll through your phone and find a dozen people instantly that you know you can stick in the car and can drive the car fast driving the car is such a small part of the job of a professional racing driver what's the biggest part it's being able to be a marketable presence someone who is relatable to brands that are interested in getting engaged with motorsport and the people that are the public face of motorsport you could be the best sim racer in the world but if you can't hold a conversation with the CEO of a top ASIC level, ASIC level company, if you can't talk to their shareholders and their employees, if you can't talk to uh, people in a retail network, if you can't uh, present well in public at a car club meeting um, or a sponsor engagement, you've got no future in professional motorsport because as much as we talk about it as a sport, at its core to get anywhere in this business, it is a business and you have to deliver. How do you deliver? You need to be a marketable, unique selling prospect to people that have money that want to turn that money into flashy cars, flames and some flags flying at a racetrack. You know, when you boil it down to motorsport is the conversion of money into noise. The sponsor needs to be satisfied that the noise that's generated, be it visual noise, audible noise, and media coverage is a sufficient return on investment for the money that they hand over to that race team. And it's probably a conversation for another podcast where we could talk all about the Australian sim racing scene and what needs to happen for it to become a more sustainable and commercially viable industry. Of course, it's something that I've been quite heavily involved in myself in the face of the pandemic, but that'll be another podcast episode where we can talk about that in a bit more detail. But we, we should, I was say, Lachlan, we should point out that there is a great new online resource available for people if they want to find out more about what's going on in the sim racing landscape in Australia. You wouldn't happen to know what that website is, would you? <laughs> So you've actually saved me the trouble of having to slide in or, or find some sort of creative way of sliding in a plug. Yes, simracingoz.com, which is the sim racing news website, which I started once the pandemic started to escalate and sim racing started to proliferate. But just coming back to the original question, though, I think virtual motorsport, one of the things, and I've said this on a couple of other podcasts as well, is the fact that on the one hand, the online and the simulation technology is becoming more realistic, more like real-life motorsport, but on the other side of the coin, real-life race cars, because they're getting more and more driver assists and driver aids, they're becoming more like computers to drive as well. So you've got the two things converging, and there's a lot more crossover than there used to be, and it's only going to continue to increase. 
Absolutely. But at the same time, we see it, you know, look at TA2 and TCM and even supercars to an extent. They're almost a rejection of that manoeuvre of the modern, you know, high-level motorsport vehicle or even high-level automotive um, vehicle. You know, strip all that stuff away. TA2 car, no traction control, no stability control, four-speed H-pattern gearbox. As much respect as I have for the sim races, and I do, like I've competed in a real world versus uh, sim world showdown, and I got absolutely pantsed by even some of the high level pro races, but I absolutely got pantsed by um, the professional uh, sim races uh, because, you know, they committed to their craft, that they're very, you know, they're dedicated to it. They're effectively professional athletes. It's just that their playing field is a sim rig with a you know set of pedals and a and a steering wheel but what does the person in the grandstand the person at the other end of the television or the live streaming the people that are paying the sponsors money for their products because they see them what do they actually want to see do they want to see people driving computers or do they want to see people manhandling something that's on the verge of exploding every five seconds I think that's the question we've got to ask. We have seen a lot of successful uh, transition from sim racing into virtual racing. Um, you know, the Nissan PlayStation GT Academy championed by um, Darren Cox in the mid-20-teens being a prime example. Um, and I think the Erebus Academy uh, example is a really, really good one as well. Erebus should be congratulated for looking at all the potential avenues for securing future talent in the sport. But as good as you can be racing in sim, unless you can find, it's still that age-old question, unless you can find the cubic, you know, measures of dollars and be a marketable presence to, you know, fast-moving consumer goods companies, tech companies, petrochemical companies, whatever industry it is that wants to get involved in motorsport, you have to be, have to make a connection with them to get the money to move into the real world because there's very few people that will get the opportunity solely because they're the best person on iRacing. Again, not denigrating what they do at all. I have the utmost respect for it. I know that I suck at it. Um, like a lot of people who recently were involved in the BP Ultimate Supercars All-Stars E-Series, um, there's some people that have the knack for it and some people that don't. But I think that transition from sim to real world Yes, there's a psychological jump, but as you and I know, there's a big financial jump as well. A massive financial jump, no question about that, both in terms of the running costs and in terms of repair costs if you get things a little bit wrong on the track. Rightio, let's wrap up this podcast by answering this question. So Winston Churchill, the former English Prime Minister, had some reaper quotes and one of them was never waste a good crisis. What does the Australian motorsport industry have to do to make sure that it doesn't waste the crisis that we're all encountering at the moment? Oh, and this was the question that I spent the longest time pondering, and I still don't think I could come up for an answer for it. I would hope that there will be more examples like Super 2 and Super 3 putting aside their differences and coming together effectively as one field. It, it is technically 
two completely different series with two completely different technical specifications of car on two different brands of tyre, racing as one. We've seen it with the production car example where they've moved from the uh, Motorsport Australia Shannon's uh, series across the AMRS. I think if there's more people having the ability to zip up the ego for a couple of years while we know, and you and I have seen the financial indicators, the economic impact of coronavirus will linger for several years in the same way we saw the recovery from the GFC taking several years. If we let the market decide free of ego, I think you should see a good deal of rationalization. Unfortunately, unlike you know <clears throat> a modern school sports day where everybody gets a ribbon, unfortunately, there are going to be some losers at the end of this. Think back to the GFC. For two years, we lost Carrera Cup. After the 2010, we lost the Mini Challenge. You know, there's the supercars field dropped from, I think it was 29 or 31 cars down to 28, then 26, then 24. You know, there will be some unfortunate casualties. But the sport as a whole will benefit. And a lot of the people that move around in that might find themselves in a different role not necessarily the same role, but working in the industry in a different different manner. I think you'll see a lot of movement away from the higher level gentleman categories back to more of that club and state level racing. You may even see a lot of state level racing competitors move away from wheel to reel racing and go do some more sprints, go do some time trial activities, go and do more hill climbs. I think you'll see a filtering down of competitors so you'll see some competitor groups getting a bit of a bump, some competitors, competitor groups having some fluctuation and doing okay, and then you'll probably see some competitor groups, some some category may unfortunately go, that's it, that's all she wrote. Dave Stilwell, always thought-provoking having you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lachlan. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Glad to see that uh, the technology prevailed and that uh, our conversation wasn't quarantined across uh, the uh, Murray River. So there's our analysis and predictions of where the motorsport industry is heading, but on reflection, our attempts to answer some of the big questions have only uncovered even more questions to which there are no easy answers. That's only more of a reason to keep asking questions, keep exploring possibilities, and keep looking for solutions to ensure we can continue doing what we all love going motor racing. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.